our Messiah. Now we pray, Father God, that you will illuminate the scriptures to us this Palm Sunday and help us to understand it freshly and in the process to glorify you and honor you. What a great God you are. Thank you for your love that you sent your son to the cross in our place. Now speak to us through your word by the agency of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Uh, the word Comic-Con is a, is a portmanteau of the, of the conjunction of the word comic book convention. So Comic-Con fans, they gather together primarily to focus on comic books and comic book culture and, of course, to greet each other and to greet the creators and the experts in comic book culture. Uh, these events typically range out to several days long, and they're hosted in hotels, college campuses, uh, convention centers, but they've come to display a wide variety of genre. Um, the attendees frequently dress up in character. It's called cosplay, which is a portmanteau of costume play, and they dress up as the characters of these comic books or of uh, different uh, fantasy ones. Now, the first Cosmic Con, first Comic Con was in 1964 in New York City, but now uh, virtually every city has a Comic Con convention. Uh, in fact, Seattle hosted the Emerald City Comic Con just this last month. And when people get together, there's a range of, of pop culture, entertainment elements that it include horror and animation and anime and manga and and toys and collectible games and video games and web comics and, and fantasy novels. I hope this is the mic and we can dump it and go back, Dave. <laughs> Tell me it's the mic's problem. <laughs> I hate this mic if you don't know what the story about this. <laughs> yeah, but it makes me look like Joel Osteen and I don't want to do that. <laughs> At any rate, at these uh, Comic-Cons, the cosplay has become the big thing. And so maybe you saw pictures on the news of everybody dressed up like superheroes or comic book characters walking through downtown Seattle. So based on the word Comic-Con, my grandkids have taken to call Connie, my wife, Grandma-Con. So that's, a, that's her nickname because of Comic-Con. But what I want to talk about today is Cosmic-Con. Uh, it's a... It's an idea that we view something as being ordinary, temporal, not, uh, uh, not non-phenomenal. I mean, they can be super phenomenal events, but we see them as just being ordinary, temporal, um, insignificant events, uh, incidental. But in reality, what I'm talking about is events that we see as not being significant, but in reality have cosmic consequences, and hence... Cosmic Con, and that's going to be the reoccurring theme today. So now that we've had the kids march through the, the sanctuary, we, we realize that today is Palm Sunday, and we are commemorating in Palm Sunday that Jesus enters Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and he's announcing to Jerusalem, to the world, that he is her king. It is a significant day of great celebration, but no one at the time guessed that this event was of cosmic consequence. No one realized that this was a, was a cosmic con event. So today in churches all around the country, our church being no exception, we show up on, on 
Palm Sunday, and we hear about this victorious grand parade of, of Jesus as he announces he's the Messiah. Then we come back next Sunday, which is Easter Sunday, and we hear about the victorious resurrection of Jesus from the grave. But very seldom in the way that many churches, including ours, um, have church services through this Passion Week, we miss everything in between. We miss all of the events that take place between the, the triumphal entry and the triumphal resurrection. So if you were to look through the New Testament, a lot of stuff happens during this week, and a bulk of the Gospels have to do with what takes place between the triumphal entry and the triumphal resurrection. Things like the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple, Israel's leaders challenging Jesus. Um, there's the, the prophecy that Jesus has of the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the age. Um, there's the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, the legal trials, the conviction, and ultimately the crucifixion. So if you just come back next Sunday, we're going to be talking about the resurrection. You're going to miss everything that takes place between these two Sunday events. Now, what I have to talk about today is true of all of those events that I just mentioned, but I only have time to focus on the four big ones, the four big ones being the triumphal entry, because it's today and you expect me to talk about that. And secondly, we'll talk about the Lord's Supper, which is also today, and you expect me sometime to talk about that. But then we'll go to the, uh, the agony of Gethsemane, and then finally um, the crucifixion in, in John 19. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me first to John chapter 12, and we're going to blast through several chapters. But my point is that at each one of these examples, that we're going to demonstrate that while they were of cosmic consequence, no one at the time understood that to be so. No one understood that, that this was more than an ordinary event, even if it was remarkable and, and, and had great big fanfare, but no one thought that it was anything other than significant for the day. They, no one realized that any of these events had cosmic consequences. But I want to show you, finally, when we get to the end, there are still events happening today, and you are experiencing them that have cosmic consequences, but you think nothing of them. You don't get the fact that they're more than natural, but in reality, they're supernatural. They're cosmic con. Okay, so John chapter 12, blast down to verse 12, because this is Palm Sunday. Let's turn there. Um, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Um, we'll look back up a little bit in time here. In the intertestamental period, the time after the Old Testament ends but before the New Testament begins, something happened to the Jewish people that would define them in terms of their national identity for centuries to come. In the second century B.C., about 167 B.C., the, the Seleucid dynasty led by Antiochus IV Epiphanes came and desecrated the Jewish temple. He offers a, a sacrifice of a pig in the temple so that the Jews couldn't use it. Um, he's the, 
leader at that point of the Seleucid dynasty. Remember when Alexander the Great died, he divided his kingdom into four generals. Um, Seleucus Nicator was the general that took all of the Levant, that's including Israel, all of the, the Fertile Crescent, almost all the way to India belonged to this general's empire. And so these guys became the inheritors of the Seleucid um, Empire. Well, in response to Antiochus IV Epiphanes desecrating the temple, the Jews were really ticked about this event. And there's this one guy named Mattathias who starts a, a, a resistance, a, um, a terrorist group, actually, against the Seleucid. And he, um, he's determined to return Israel to its ancient religious uh, roots. And so he resents the invasion of the Seleucids. Seleucid. So um, Mattathias um, becomes the leader of this guerrilla group against the Seleucids. So when he dies, the leadership of this insurrectionist movement passes on to his son, Judas. Judas became known as Judas Maccabeus. So if you ever look at a Catholic Bible, you'll find that there are two books of Maccabees that's related to this fellow's name. The word Maccabees just means the hammer. The hammer. What's a hammer time? Good hammer time. Anyway, so Judas Maccabeus becomes a national hero because he actually forces the Seleucids to abandon control of the temple and returns it to Jewish control in about 164 BC. This became a, a, a moment of national celebration. And so they, they, a, a, a new feast was declared, the, the, the dedication of the Feast of Lights. Uh, uh, we know it today as Hanukkah is still celebrated when Judas Maccabeus got the Seleucids to let go of the control of the temple in uh, 164 BC. So later, the, the power then switches from Judas to his brother, Simon Maccabeus. Simon Maccabeus actually drives the Seleucids out of Jerusalem and out of Israel altogether. And the, the, he is met with such fanfare that, that there, a parade is, is um, staged for him, much like a New York ticker tape parade. In this case, they're taking palm branches and they're waving these palm branches and laying them down for um, Simon Maccabeus. Um, and the, the image of the palm branch becomes a national image of independence. In fact, in 60 AD, no, 60 BC, they actually started minting Jewish coins with the palm branch on it because of that. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. It goes clear back to Simon Maccabeus. And the interesting thing about that is in Jerusalem, palms are quite rare. It's actually too cold in Jerusalem. Um, most of the season of, in Jerusalem is much like it is here, where you, it's cold and damp through the winter. Um, sometimes it snows. It, it's not tropical like you'd imagine it to be. So palm branches were quite rare. So now when Jesus comes along, this is the image that they have of this guy who's going to be a liberator and get rid of these occupying forces, in this case the Romans, much like Simon Maccabeus did get rid of the Seleucid, the Greeks from uh, Israel. And so they're welcoming him with palm branches, probably not as many as we imagine, but they're using their palm branches and, and their coats and they're doing everything you know, to, to make lots of visual display as they welcome Jesus, whom they think in this case is going to be 
um, the, the new Messiah like Judas Maccabeus had been. And, and so they're, they're waving the palm branches. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Welcome to the king of Israel. But they're thinking in terms of, of, of nationalism. They're thinking in terms of, of Jesus liberating them from the Romans. In a sense, they're right. You know, Jesus, like Simon Maccabeus, had come to bring peace. He'd come to, to bring the end of hostility. He'd come to save them as a people. But that's kind of where it ends because them at that moment, they at that moment are only thinking of what's happening now. They're not thinking of this having any kind of eternal consequences. They don't realize that the kind of Messiah that Jesus is, is one that frees them from sin, that liberates them from the control of the enemy, of, of Satan, that gives them peace with God. So it's something of cosmic consequence is taking place at this moment, but they don't see it. No one sees it. Look at verse 16 again. Again, my point is, Something of cosmic consequence is taking place, but nobody understands it. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things. And later they would, when Jesus was resurrected. But at this point, they don't see anything more than something phenomenally significant for the moment. Now let's jump ahead to uh, chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 1 um, John is relating the story of the Lord's Supper. Now, John leaves out a lot of the detail that the other gospel writers give because John has a different um, point that he's trying to make in relaying the story of the Last Supper. He begins, John begins by telling about how Jesus, when the disciples are all together, he wraps a towel around himself and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. And we get to verse 6. Simon says to him, uh, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus says to him, look, what I'm doing, you do not understand now. But afterwards, you will understand. What's he saying? You don't get it. You don't realize that what's happening right now has co cosmic consequences. But you're only thinking of it as being something amusing now. Jump down to verse 31. This is towards the end of the meal, the end of the Lord's Supper. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. This, by the way, is the point of all these cosmic consequences, the glorification of Jesus and of God. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glory Him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will see me excuse me, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so I now say to you, where I'm going, you can't come. And then jump ahead to verse 36. And Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus says, I'm going where you can't follow me now, but you'll follow me afterwards. And Peter said, Lord, why can't we follow you? I'd, I'd lay down my life for you. And Jesus said, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. Again, notice this meal this Lord's Supper, something that has cosmic consequences, something that the church will celebrate, has celebrated for the last 2,000 years and will continue to celebrate until the Lord comes. It represents what God has given to us and the price that God had to pay to spend his wrath against Jesus at the cross. They, Jesus is foretelling this in the Lord's Supper. And you know what? No one understands it. Nobody gets it. Nobody realizes that what's happening right now in this meal is of cosmic consequence. So let's jump ahead now to uh, 
verse, chapter, chapter 18, to the, to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. Again, John's point here, John doesn't tell us a lot about what took place at the Garden of Gethsemane because he's more interested in the process of Jesus' arrest and betrayal. But we'll begin with verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Um, jumping back to Luke, Luke gives us a little more background information. Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Um, he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. And when he came to that place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter to temptation. Here's something of cosmic consequence, this, this agony in the garden. And here are the disciples. They, they see nothing more than one more night where they need some sleep, and Jesus is preoccupied with prayer. They see nothing of cosmic consequence about what's taking place at this moment. A little bit of background information. It's called the Mount of Olives. It was covered with olives at the time of Jesus. If you look at it today, it's covered with tombstones and rocks. There's hardly an olive tree anywhere near the Mount of Olives, except right down in this little valley between. You come down off the hill from the Temple Mount, there's a few little olive trees. And they say there's an olive down there that its roots go back to the time of Jesus. I don't know. That's good for tourist kind of stuff. But the point was, when the Romans came in 60. Uh, 60 A.D., they sacked Jerusalem in 70 A.D. They mowed down every tree, you know, for firewood and for, and for instruments. Down. So in the, from, from the siege of Jerusalem onwards, the place is naked of olive trees, but it was thick with olive trees in Jesus' day. Now, again, John doesn't give us an account of the agony of Gethsemane, but notice the language that, that even Luke, when I, when I read that passage to you, Luke talks about that Jesus is in such agony about what's taking place. Why? Because he gets it. He realizes that what's taking place at this moment is of cosmic consequence. And he, he, he realizes that what's about to take place is that God's going to spend his wrath against him for the sins of humanity. That for the first time in eternity, not just in the last 30 years, for the first time in eternity, Jesus is not only going to be separated from the Father, but separated by the Father's wrath. And Luke says that he's praying in agony so that his sweat's falling like blood. Some people say he's actually sweating blood. That, there's no indication that that took place. And then I've seen all kinds of medical gymnastics to tell us how you can sweat blood. I don't know, but that's not what Luke says. Luke is trying to point out the agony of what's taking place, not that blood is actually weeping out of his sweat pores. But he's so sorrowful that the sweat, that the sweat falls like great drops of blood. But John doesn't tell us anything about that because he's not interested in that. He rather focuses on the betrayal that's about to take place. And this betrayal, John is showing, is of cosmic consequence and again 
nobody gets it. So here we find the, the disciples, they're tired, um, they're bored. They don't want to spend the whole night uh, praying, and so they're sleeping. But I have to pause to ask at this point, why does he go to the garden at all? He's just dismissed Judas at the, the Lord's Supper, saying, you know what you have to do? Go and do it quickly. And he realizes, Judas knows this place, this garden that he hangs out. He realizes that's the first place that Judas is going to bring the entourage to go and arrest, to arrest Jesus. But he makes no effort to evade the arrest. In fact, it looks like he's trying really hard to be captured. So he goes to this garden. And then again, I want to know, well, why there? Remember, Jesus has been spending all this time um, with the home of Lazarus, Mary, and uh, Martha in Bethany. The reason that he goes to the garden and not back to Bethany is during the Passover, the pilgrims, if you didn't live in Jerusalem, pilgrims are required to sleep within a certain vicinity of Jerusalem during the Passover. The garden is at the edge of this uh, vicinity. He's, a, he's allowed to sleep there. Bethany is outside of this vicinity. So that's why they're going to the garden. And probably lots of people are camped out all over Jerusalem at this time. Anyway, John tells us that, that Judas often went there, verse 2, Judas often went there with Jesus, and he knows to, to meet, them, uh, meet them there. Of course, once again, and we go now to the most significant event in all of the Bible. If you want to jump ahead to uh, chapter 19, the most significant event in all of the Bible, in all of human history, in all of redemptive history, in all of eternity, the most significant event that ever took place was when Jesus died on the cross. And I want to point out here too, once again, no one understood that what was taking place at the moment was of cosmic consequence. It was phenomenal. It was earth-shaking. I mean, literally. It was, it was terrifying. It was frightful. But they all understood it in terms of what was temporal, what was taking place now. No one understood that what was taking place here was of cosmic consequence. John 19, beginning in verse 16. So they took Jesus and went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. And the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast my lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now, in all of the Gospels, it's really amusing to me. I just got through telling you this is the most 
significant event in all cosmic history, in all of eternity. But very little is actually said in any of the Gospels, in any of the Bible, about the process of the crucifixion. Very little is said about Jesus, the painful route that he has to take through Jerusalem and um, the, the, the scourging and what happened in the scourging and how it was done and what happens at the crucifixion. And the reason why little is said about that is everybody already knew. Everybody to whom these words were written had already watched a crucifixion. They were very familiar. There's nothing novel about a crucifixion. In fact, a lot of people will tell you how terribly painful this was for Jesus. It was terribly painful, equally painful for tens of thousands of other people. Nothing particularly unique about the physical pain which Jesus had to endure. The people had seen so many of these these marches of someone being crucified. Typically what would happen is there'd be a squad of four soldiers, one of them being an officer. The convicted criminal would be given the cross piece, the patibulum, not the whole cross, just the crossbar. And it might weigh, I don't know, 75 to 100 pounds. It was big, but it's not carrying the whole cross. And he was forced to carry this cross to the place of execution, but not the most direct route because they had, the officer in front would have a placard with the victim's charges against him so that everyone could see, you cross us, you threaten Rome, this is what happens to you. You see what happens to this guy? This could be you. Also, in the sense of fair play, they'd march through town with this placard, and if anybody wanted to stand up and defend the guy, they gave him the opportunity to come up with new evidence or new witnesses so the guy didn't have to die. But the point is, it was meant to be cruel, and so they would, they would shuffle the longest route possible to get to the place of execution. And the place of execution was the most public place possible, right where the roads intersected, where nearly everybody had to come through. Here's Jesus then carrying the cross piece of the cross, the patibulum, and don't you see in here a picture of, remember when God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son and Isaac's carrying the wood to the place of sacrifice. And here you have Jesus carrying the wood to the place of sacrifice. And this placard that this officer was carrying ahead is that which would be then nailed to the top part of the cross. And it said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And the bystanders would have to see that, which really irritated the Jewish leaders because they didn't want people to think he really was the king of the Jews. Once they got to the place of execution, the uh, victim intended to be on the cross would either be tied to that patibulum, or in Jesus' case, they actually nailed him to the, the crossbar, either through the wrists or through the palm of the hands. And then that whole crossbar would then be hoisted up onto the vertical beam, which usually stayed in place. They would hoist him up there. Then the guy would just be hanging from his hands until they put either a, a, a piece of wood for the guy to stand on, or in Jesus' case, they nailed his feet to the cross. But they nailed his feet to the cross in such a way that they were bent, not hanging straight. And the reason for that is the way you died by crucifixion was usually by asphyxiation. You got tired you're hanging that way and there's pressure on your chest. In order to catch a breath, 
the crucified guy would have to stand up, push up on his knees in order to breathe. And so there, be, there came this rather rhythmic motion. This was not an act of kindness to help them breathe better. The whole point of that is to make the execution last as long as possible, that they'd be as miserable as possible for the longest period of time. Anyway, we're getting a little far afield of what, uh, what took place here, but the point is that not that to, for you to visualize the agony that Jesus bore on the cross because the agony that he experienced physically was just a shadow of the misery that Jesus would have to face because what he feared was not the physical agony, what he feared because he was the only one there at the time to realize that this event was of cosmic consequence. He feared this separation from God. He had known God through eternity. The language is face to face in the eternal present, not infinitely past, the eternal present. They're seeing one another face to face. There's this, this bond of love. And yet in this moment when he hung on the cross, the sins of humanity would be placed upon him and God's holy wrath then is placed upon him as well. And so Jesus throughout this whole ordeal, realizing the real cosmic consequence of this event would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the physical agony was nothing compared to the spiritual horror that Jesus would have, to run, would have to go through because he loved us to do that. Look at verse 23 of chapter 12, back to the... Uh, Palm Sunday, the, no, excuse me, 23 of chapter 19, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. 23 of 19 is the soldiers are gambling for Jesus' clothes. It says that they each took one article and there was one piece left over. It says it was his tunic. Some versions say his undergarment. This is not his underwear. This is a base layer, a, a woven base layer that a person would wear. And in this particular instance, it was quite valuable because it was in one piece and they didn't want to tear it up. And so they gambled to see who got to keep the base layer, the tunic. You suppose that these soldiers were thinking at that time, you know, the Jewish scripture says that we're supposed to gamble for his clothes and we really better, better get down to it and gamble for it because that's what we're supposed to do here. These guys don't know the Jewish scripture. And they have no interest in fulfilling it or doing anything about it. It's completely incidental to them. Unknowingly, they are doing something of cosmic consequence. They are fulfilling the Scripture because the Scripture says that they would gamble for his clothes. They have no idea that, this, that they're fulfilling cosmic history. And don't you get the idea? Here's the soldiers. They've got three guys up there on the cross they got some time to kill. <laughs> they got something to kill anyway. So there's like three guys up there dying, and it's got to be gruesome. These soldiers have to be pretty hardened to just turn their back on three guys that are miserably suffering and going to be dead in four or five hours, a day or two if you could make it work. If you were a good executioner, you could make a guy last a long time on the, hanging up on the cross like that. Now, what are these guys doing? They're on their knees, I suspect, you know, throwing dice to see who's going to get the, the tunic. And don't you get the idea how that they're completely 
indifferent to the, the pain, the cries, the moaning of these three guys that they've, that they've just crucified on the cross. You see them huddled together trying to decide who's going to get the better end of this deal. And at this moment, these soldiers see Jesus as offering them nothing. There's nothing that they can gain from Jesus except his clothes. And one of them's going to get the better share. One of them's going to get this, this base layer, this tunic. And you think, well, how callous can you be? Here's the guy dying, and you're doing it. You just nailed him up there, and you're gambling for his clothes. But before we get too critical of these crass Roman soldiers who see that Jesus has nothing to offer him except whatever physical things they can gain, isn't that true of most of the world, that they think of Jesus as nothing to offer them except what they can gain physically? More to the point, consider your own prayers and consider how much of the time you pray it is about what Jesus can do for you physically, what Jesus can do to make your life more comfortable, and you are not praying, how can I conform to the will of God? How can what I go through bring glory to God? Are we really all that different from the Roman soldiers? I don't mean to be crass about it, but it's a legitimate question. And I'll press my point. The reason that we do that is the same reason the Roman soldiers do that, because we don't realize that what's happening to us is of cosmic consequence. We see only our uncomfort, and we want only relief from our pain. And so our prayers sound much more like shopping lists of all the things that we're going to let God do for us than they do for our spiritual petition that that God be glorified through my life in whatever it takes. What these soldiers don't realize is that they're playing out a role that's been designated for them before time began. Foretold in scriptures long before any one of them were born and any one of them came to the scene. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of, full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So we see here in this picture not not someone who is an unwilling victim, not someone who's completely out of control, not someone who's the object of Rome's anger. We see that Jesus is not only completely aware of what's going on, but completely in control of what's going on. And when it was all finished, he decided when it was going to end. He decided when he would give up his spirit. And his last words were, were, it is finished. It's all been completed. Everything has been accomplished. Nothing can be added. Nothing more needs to be completed by you. All of the scripture has been fulfilled. There's no loose ends. It's all tied up. It's over. It's completed. He dies voluntarily, giving up his spirit. Now back to chapter 12, back to the uh, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. This time... In verse 32, Jesus says that the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. 
Let me ask you a question because we throw this out a lot. If you want to get saved, you have to believe in Jesus. What does it mean to believe in this person who's bloodied and hanging on this cross? What does it mean that, that uh, we believe in this crucified man? What do we have to believe in him? Simply this, that the reason that he's there is because this is the only way that a holy, just God can bring children who are sinners, treasonous, who have joined the rebellion with Satan, and he brings us to be his own sons and daughters. This man on the cross is the only way that that could take place. And only God could pull that off. And only Jesus could pay that price. God's own Son becomes the substitute sacrifice for us. That's what was finished. And there's nothing more that you could add to it. It's blasphemous to think Jesus has done almost all. I need to finish the work. I just need to extend my small piece to it. If what Christ did on the cross is unfinished, then we might have a reason to think that he has done 99% of it, but it still requires me to add my finishing 1%. And you know why that's blasphemous? Because it's like taking the Mona Lisa and saying, you know, Da Vinci did a nice job with this painting, but what it really needs is my crayon, and I could finish this work and make it better. Or Michelangelo's David. You know, you know, Michelangelo did a pretty good job carving this rock David, but you know what? I think he needs a few more details. And so you take your chisel out, and so you pound out a few more details and carve your initials and write Kilroy was here on the back. Now it's finished. Or for you to say, you know, you know, uh, Handel did a great job on the Hallelujah Chorus. Pretty good work, but you know what? It needs a harmonica and a little more cowbell. <laughs> or, you know, uh, Bach's Yesu Joy of Man's Desiring. Nice piece of work. Needs an electric guitar, but after that it'd be okay. The point that I'm making is, you think that by adding your miserable contribution, you're going to perfect or make better any of those great works you think when Jesus said it is finished, he's leaving it open for you to add the final marks. All you need to do is just extend your will. All of these events, and literally millions of others today, are of cosmic consequence. And you are experiencing many of them today too. But you see them as only being temporal, natural, not eternal and not supernatural. And yet all of these events that we've looked at today, there are eternal spiritual beings looking down on them. Think about as Christ dies on the cross. Every spiritual being in heaven and in hell, every sentient being is looking at this moment, this pivotal moment of all eternity, and they understand this as being the most significant event ever, the event of Massive cosmic consequence, but they, the human beings at the time, think 
It's amazing, but nothing more than temporal. And yet, isn't this exactly the point that Paul has been trying to drive home to us through our study of Romans? Paul wants, to, to, wants us to see that for Christians, as we go through suffering and trial and difficult times and discomfort, that there's something more happening than just our discomfort. So much of what's happening is of cosmic consequences. And God is up there pointing them, the rest of these spiritual beings, to, to show them your sufferings. We perceive our discomfort as only an opportunity for us to ask God to give us relief. And so we pray for relief from our physical distress. What if God's purpose in your life was something infinitely more than giving you comfort? What if the reason for your discomfort involved His glory? And it was less about see how they suffer as look how Christians suffer well. What if our suffering, our temptations, our victories over our present sin, our transformation over time to be less like Satan whose rebellion we joined and becoming more like Jesus Christ who has redeemed us on the cross? What if his desire for us was something much more than relief? What if it was a display of his glory? Now let me ask you something. Isn't this what the entire book of Job is all about? You look at the book of Job if you have time. You flip to the middle of your Bible, you'll find Psalms, and then go backwards just a little bit. The book right before Psalms is Job. Job begins with, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, who feared God and turned away from evil. And then we go on to read how God is pleased with Job, and God is honored by Job's life. And before these celestial beings, Job, God says, have you considered Job? Have you considered Job, who is blameless and upright in my sight? So you have this really clear picture here that God likes Job, that God is honored by Job. If there's any man that God is really pleased with, it's Job. What happens to Job? Well, the whole rest of the story is Job is miserable, and he suffers, and it's unjust. And he suffers physically, he suffers, he's tormented mentally, he loses everything. What's taking place in the backstory all through this time? That God does this for his glory, that something of cosmic consequence is taking place, but Job or any of his friends, no one else perceives it at this moment. They think, this is bad. You need to pray for relief. You need to get out from this mess. No one understands that the struggle that's going on here, the whole point of the book, is that Job's suffering honors God because he suffers well and he glorifies God through it all. What, when God looks down at your life, when God looks down on his, his children whom he dearly loves, is he up there with his buddies, with the other eternal beings, the elders surrounding the throne of God? And does he look down and say, have you considered my servant Rick? Have you considered my servant Joe? He suffers well for my honor. These are things we think are pointless in life, but they're things of cosmic consequence. What if 
through our tribulation and our suffering, God receives glory, and God is making us like Jesus, and God is adopting us, and He intends to share glory with us through our sufferings. And what if all of those sufferings, whatever they are, ultimately serve to glorify God? Is that too much for God to ask of you? And ultimately, God will be glorified. Just as he was glorified through the suffering of Jesus, that through his agony and his pain, through him bearing this weight, God would bring many sons to glory. Your struggles, I'm sure, are not worthy to be compared to the struggles that Jesus had. They're not worthy to be compared to the pain that Jesus suffered on the cross. But like all of these events that we've mentioned through the Passion Week, our trials, our sufferings, they're seldom viewed as moments of cosmic consequence. But what if they are? Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you once again for your word to us. And we celebrate this week not only the triumphal entry of Jesus to Jerusalem, we celebrate too that he died on the cross. And then when we come back again next week to celebrate after three days of being dead, Jesus was raised to life. Nothing more was added to our salvation through his resurrection, but it is the proof that you accepted the payment, that you were satisfied with what has been given, and now there is peace between us. Now, Father, as we turn our attention to this communion meal, this token, this reminder of the Last Supper that Jesus celebrated with his disciples before the Passion. And we remember in these elements the blood which washes away our sin, the blood which you look through in order to view our failures. And you determine that they have been paid in full, not inconsequential, paid in full, and you're satisfied. And as we take this bread, we remember that Jesus lived a perfect righteous life. And not only are we forgiven and therefore morally neutral, but we are considered as righteous as Jesus because his righteousness has been imputed to us. We are righteous because you have given us his righteousness. Father, forgive our sins. May we be reminded through taking this communion that we have abandoned them, that we might live for you. And Father, this day we accept whatever your hand delights to bring into our lives because we know that you love us. And it is our pleasure through whatever means that you would receive glory through our lives. May you be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll ask the guys that are going to be distributing the elements to come forward and whoever's doing communion songs, if you do that at this time.
of the Lord's Supper. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that's been poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
I think often we try to separate the events of the Lord's Supper, the communion that we celebrate from the Passover narrative, but really it's always been an integral part of it. It takes place in the context of the space between the triumphal entry and the hanging on the cross. Later, Paul would write to the Corinthians, I received from the Lord, but I also pass on to you that on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the body of Jesus, which was given for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you eat it and drink it, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we look back at the Lord's Supper that he shared with his disciples, but the point that Jesus was making is that we also look forward to the time when we will all celebrate again with Jesus when he returns. We look back at the cross. We look forward to his return. This is the blood of Jesus, which has been shed for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for the sacrifice you made in going to the cross and being the object of God's wrath. Father God, we thank you too that the reason that Jesus was crucified on the cross was because of your great love for your sons and your daughters, that you took no delight in spending your wrath against our sin upon him but you did it because your love was so great, and we give you thanks. And as we have shared this communion with each other, we commit this day to live our lives in a manner that pleases you, to realize that so much of what we think is just ordinary life are, in fact, events of cosmic consequence. Help us to live with that frame of mind. To your glory, for your honor, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.